it is it is the Jenny Hatch Show at Healthy Families, and I am your host. My guest today is someone who is an independent journalist at Investigations in Ritual Abuse. I don't know his name, but that's okay. And I thought we'd start the show today by talking about the cease and desist letters that he and I have both received recently. So welcome to the show. Thank you, Jenny. Um, my, my alias on investigations and ritual abuse is Goel. Um, in terms of diving right into the uh, Utah Crime Victims Legal Clinic letters, my understanding of it is, is that they have sent you a letter as well as other people covering this particular case, the David Lee Hamlin case. Um, in my case, they sent me a letter, Crystal Powell, uh, of the Utah Crime Victims Clinic, uh, sent me a letter in which she accused me of unmasking the identities of two of the victims in the Hamlin case. Uh, my rebuttal to that was that their identities had already been unmasked by the public police department who had released unredacted records, including victim statements, with potential clues that would exactly who Sorry, to, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but you're breaking up, so if you could say that again. I said my rebuttal to it was that the Provo Police Department and the Utah County Attorney's Office had already unmasked the victims' names by releasing unredacted records, including victim statements that had contextual clues that would tell you exactly who the victims were. Um, so their identities were already public knowledge. I didn't unmask anything. And I pointed that out uh, to Crystal Powell uh, in my rebuttal email to her as well as on my substack. Uh, with In your case, it went a little deeper. Um, Crystal and her cohorts at the Utah uh, Crime Victims Legal Clinic uh, tried to insinuate that you were violating a stalking statute in Utah by covering the case. And that did not sit well with me, and so... I excoriated them further um, when I replied to them, you know, about my particular case. Well, I really, so I really, I really appreciated you doing that because um, I'm not a legal person. I don't understand legal jargon, but I in no way was stalking those women. I never said their names. I never doxed their addresses. All I did was publish the victim statements and the audio and video files that were obtained legally from a grandma request from the Provo Police Department, and much of those documents were redacted. Now, you didn't have to be any sort of an intellect to realize who these victims were, as you say. You know, it was obvious who they were, but just the same. I All I did was publish the documents. I didn't even speculate who they were. Yeah, I mean, the reality of it is... Sorry, you're, bre you're, you're breaking up again. Could you say that again? So I did not feel, having examined your content and everything, that you had violated a criminal stalking statute out of Utah. So I, I found it was to be absurd 
you know, to be an effort at intimidating independent journalists who are covering the Hamlin case. My working theory on it is that Roselle Stevenson, the mother of Rachel Jones, Eliza Baxter, or Eliza uh, Bradford and Catherine Baxter, as well as Miriam Hamlin, their mother was the one who was behind it. I have personally spoken over the phone to Roselle Stevenson. I tracked down a phone number for her. Um, she was as cool as a cucumber. She was behind what? Us getting the cease and desist letters? Yeah, because in the original, in the original filings that she made between 1999 and 2003 with DCFS and in the divorce court, she was portraying herself as a victim of domestic abuse as well. So it would make sense that she would be portraying herself as a victim in this case, as opposed to what she allegedly is, a perpetrator of the abuse against her own daughters and other children. Um, and so my thought on it was she was aware of the coverage on my site because I had contacted her directly over the phone. She did not wish to comment. She did not directly deny any of the allegations against her. She, like many other people in this case, seemed to be adopting a wait-and-see attitude in terms of how the current case against David Lee Hamlin's going. That's my perception as well. I responded to the legal people in Utah with a, a very simple rejoinder. It was that they, you know, most cordially go fuck themselves. And so... I could not be any more clear. I'm not going to obey this cease and desist. Although I know other indie journalists who have bowed down to whatever they perceive to be the long arm of the law, pulled some of their content, stopped talking about it. And so I, I don't wish them any ill will. I get it. It's scary. We're all a little bit nervous, I think, about any sort of legal blowback. Or in my case, I've been more concerned about just flat out being killed by these people for what I'm doing. But, you know, we go forward. And so um, it's my understanding, and this is over many years of watching ritual abuse situations. And I learned this, honestly, from Fiona Barnett, who's one of the most outspoken survivors of satanic ritual abuse in the world. She claimed that many of these institutions set up to help victims, you know, oh, come to us with your sexual abuse, your ritual abuse stories, will help you with your legal problems, that they are in fact honey traps to capture those who might present a problem for the elites involved in these situations, and that they do nothing else but gather their stories and then figure out ways to shut them down, either with medications, forced hospitalizations, and or up to including being killed to silence their voice, and that much of the therapy world, especially that claims they specialize in ritual abuse. They are, in fact, not uh, deprogrammers. They are what she called reprogrammers, meaning, okay, we want to help you, victim of ritual abuse, come in here, and we will mess with you even more. And this definitely was obvious in the tactics used by David Hamblin with some of his patients. He was messing with them on every level in terms of their healing trying to make them think things had happened that really hadn't happened and or putting them under hypnosis and messing with them by sexually assaulting them. I mean, we have 
obvious declared cases in the form of Brett Bluth, who's been incredibly brave and outspoken. That story is out there. So I don't mean to say to victims, you know, stay away from the therapy world, stay away from the legal world. I would say proceed with great caution. You know, the, the issue with Hamlin's tactics, is, in my mind, they were directly aimed at exculpating him. So in the state of Utah, the Utah Supreme Court it has controlling precedent where they said testimony recovered under hypnosis is inadmissible in court. Um, we all know what happened in the 1980s with the so-called satanic panic. So the tactics that Hamlin was employing with his patients was to hypnotize them and try to convince them that under hypnosis they had revealed to him that they had suffered satanic ritual abuse as children from other people. And he would then proceed from that to grooming them for sexual contact with him under the guise of his therapy. David Hamlin's an age predator, and he, he admitted to engaging in sexual contact with his patients. That's not up for debate or dispute. He admitted to the Utah Division of Occupational and Professional Licensing that he had sex with his own patients and that he represented that sexual contact to those patients as part of their therapy. So what Brett Bluth is saying when he alleges that Hamlin tried to hypnotize him, convince him that he suffered satanic ritual abuse, and engage in sexual contact with him, that's documented fact. Two of the adult females in uh, of Hamlin's practice who Hamlin victimized testified at his divorce trial against him as to the abuse that he engaged in with them. So we've got at least three victims, three adult victims, between Brett Bluth and those two females that testified against Hamlin at his divorce trial, plus we've got Rachel Jones, Eliza Bradford, and Catherine Baxter, Hamlin's three daughters, who are now adults. So that gives you six victims, and then you've got the two current victims. One is a male and the other one is a female who are currently embroiled in a criminal case with David Lee Hamlin. But Hamlin's methodology was very deliberate. You know, by using hypnosis, he knew that any testimony would automatically be rendered suspect because anytime you were to reference hypnosis to law enforcement in Utah or to, say, a county attorney's office, they would automatically know that any sort of testimony recovered under hypnosis would be inadmissible and therefore unusable at trial. Um, in terms of the satanic ritual abuse tactic that he was using where he's trying to convince these children and these adults that they had suffered satanic ritual abuse at the hands of other people, that plays right into that as well because, you know, if you, if you go in and you say satanic ritual abuse of, of any sort, to law enforcement in Utah, they're going to be gun-shy because they're going to remember what happened in the 1980s with the so-called satanic panic. They're going to dismiss any victim that comes forward with that as as part of their claim. I found that to be true, that if you invoke Satanism, everybody gets really nervous. And so, as I've described it to other people through the years, I sometimes will just call it ritual abuse. And those who know SRA, they understand what I'm talking about. But everybody gets really, really, you know, 
who is this person? What is she talking about? What is this? You know, and so it's it's incredibly awkward to bring that up because I think we've all been sort of brainwashed by the media to think that if anybody makes that claim, it's evidence that they're mentally ill. And that that has certainly been said about me uh, by my own family. So, you know, when I was remembering the ritual side of my abuse and just to give the background of my story for those who are hearing it for the first time, I was raised in a family that I believe was part of the Church of Satan and used their Mormon religion as cover for things, dark things that were happening in our home and in our community. I did not have any memory of this till well into my 30s. And when I was 33, I started to remember uh, just incest. My brother had died. His death brought up a lot of things in my mind. And I started to re reconcile uh, the incest that occurred between my uncles and some of my older cousins and me. And then um, later on, I, re I did finally remember that my dad was involved too. That was harder for me to reconcile. And then around 2011, I started to remember the things that had occurred around this satanic situation. I reconciled my, my own initiation into the cult, which happened when I was seven and involved the murder of a young child that I you know, was forced to do. And in 2012, I checked myself into a mental hospital because I was incredibly suicidal. And the psychiatrist I worked with in Boulder, Colorado, was incredibly sympathetic to the things I was saying and had a deep understanding of ritual abuse and helped me reconcile that crime that I was forced to commit. And this is quite often how they will initiate you into the cult. They will cause you to commit a crime and then you're racked with guilt and rec recrimination and just overwhelm, overwhelming sensations that are very difficult to reconcile. And then later, honestly, over the last three years, I have reconciled two uh, pregnancies that I had early, like right after I started my period. Uh, in their orgies, the Satanists never worry about the young girls who are involved getting pregnant because as soon as the pregnancy starts to show, they will just abort the baby and use it in ritual sacrifice. And that happened to me twice. So these are all the things that I have been reconciling myself. And then in 2016, uh, when the DNC email started to be published by WikiLeaks, I read about all of this Pizzagate stuff with John Podesta and all of the members of the DNC who were using uh, descriptive language to describe what what we now believe is um, child torture and satanic stuff. And so I became very interested in that investigation, followed it closely, blogged it, made videos, made podcasts about it. And as I moved through this material, I recognized patterns of how they would cover things up, how they would use coded language to talk to each other. And that was very much a part of my childhood. And so when the Hamlin case broke into my awareness. I did not follow it back in 2012, 2014, when it was being adjudicated in Utah at first. I did not become aware of it until, gosh, I don't even remember. I think it was the dueling press conferences. I was just watching the news and something popped up and here are these press conferences. And I was like, what is this? And I watched them and I was like, 
okay, I got to do a deep dive on this. So I just started blogging it and talking about it. And um, once I realized that there was victim statement number three that was being used by the local media, mostly Adam Herbitz, because David Levitt called him out in his press conference, I said, I want to get my hands on that victim statement. So I went looking for it and I couldn't could not find it anywhere. And a fellow indie journalist and I determined that we were going to going to do that FOIA FOIA type request, Freedom of Information Act request, which in Utah is called a grandma, G-R-A-M-A, grandma request from the Provo Police Department and just get the documents. And so when he filled out the paperwork to get the documents, we both thought we were only going to get victim statement number three. And that's all we were trying to get. But here comes all of these victim statements and then video and audio files. The, the file was huge. It took hours for him to download it onto his computer. And then he uh, zip mailed them all to me. Again, hours and hours of material that I systematically put on my own blog at healthyfamilies.life. And the video and audio files are hosted on my Dropbox. And we both just started going to work as journalists outing what we had found. I made a lot of YouTube videos, which all have been pulled. Um, I made some podcasts and posted everything in the mainstream media and <clears throat> in the indie media for about six weeks. I did a daily Substack covering everything I could find on the case and just kind of warehoused it on my Substack, which is jennyhatch.substack.com. And especially the blogger at Foxy Fox, Kathy Fox, she said that was so helpful to have it just kind of laid out systematically on my Substack because as a researcher, she found that very helpful to just see all of the, you know, the dates of what showed up when on the internet, both in terms of independent media and mainstream media. And, and again, it was mostly Adam Herbert's doing the lion's share of this work, although there were other mainstream media people who did it. And a guy over at the Epic Times did wonderful stuff. And then Last American Vagabond, Derek Brose, has done seven reports. And there's others. And um, I just found that, you know, there was a real collaborative spirit amongst all of us sharing. And then everybody went silent. And I think it was because everybody received the cease and desist letters about the same time. And I went silent, too, for a couple of months because I was nervous. I was really nervous. And then you showed up on the scene and I was like, well, you know, I guess maybe I'll dive back in a little bit and see what happens. Um, but I've really appreciated your reports because they're so good. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, and, you know, conversely, what I would say is everybody owes you and your collaborator a deep gratitude um, because without that grammar request, we wouldn't have all of this material to dive through and to unravel the David Lee Hamlin story. Um, so kudos to you for filing that grammar request and, and for getting it. My working theory on why the Provo Police Department released so much information um, and so much of it being unredacted with, it, with victims' names left in is because they were really upset with what happened in 2014 when the charges were dismissed against David Lee Hamlin. They had him on a phone call apologizing to his daughter for raping her. I and saw, they still would... I saw, I saw that. 
Yeah, he admitted it himself. And that was the same with my dad. There was one time my dad apologized to me over the phone. And I was like, you know, this is great, Dad, but I need you to do it publicly. I need you to tell the family the truth. And he wouldn't do it. He died in his in his sin. And the reason why confession is the first step to repentance is because without admitting that you've done something, um, there can be no healing. You know, there can be no reconciliation. And so I thought your report, your most recent report, showing that David Hamlin's attorney is once again trying to get the case thrown out was so funny. With everything that's gone down, he's still trying to get it all dismissed. It's not so much that he's trying to get it dismissed. What they were trying to do with a, a subpoena decis testum is to get the victim to produce documents as opposed to getting the prosecution to produce documents. It is essentially a form of harassment for the victim. Um, so the victim in this case is a male adult. Um, he was a child at the time the abuse took place. But what Lee Ashton and Michael Petro are doing, those are David Lee Hamlin's attorneys, what they're doing is essentially asking the victim to produce a list of therapists that he's used for the past 20 years to produce his private journal entries um, in terms of whether or not they reference David Lee Hamlin or the ritual abuse allegedly committed by Hamlin. Um, and they're also asking the victim to produce uh, contact information for all of his immediate family members. This is not something that a victim would typically have to turn over. Typically, in a criminal prosecution, the prosecutor's office would be the one to turn that information over. And if they haven't turned it over as part of discovery, then you would file a motion to compel. You wouldn't file the subpoena to the victim to compel the victim to turn over these records. Um, Donna Kelly, uh, the prosecution, she was the one who handled uh, the motion to quash hearing uh, that occurred this past week. And she raised all of those points in terms of privacy, in terms of whether or not the, the records would be confidential or privileged. In the case of medical records, they are privileged. The only place that a list of therapists would exist would be in the medical records. I mean, not that many people who have been to therapy keep a, a, a master list of their therapists for the past two decades. That's, that's unheard of. So the only way to get that information would have been from the medical records, which are themselves privileged. And so the, the goal there was obviously twofold for Hamlin's defense attorneys. Um, it was to fire a warning shot across the victim's bow and to make the victim feel uncomfortable. And it was also to try and make an in run around privilege to get that information, um, that medical information. And the, at least initially they have failed on both accounts. We don't have the judge's ruling and we won't have it until later this month. Or actually later next month, I believe it's, February 8th is the tentative date for the next hearing when the judge will supposedly issue her ruling. Um, but at the end of the day, what they were trying to do was to make the victim uncomfortable. And they failed miserably on that account. The judge, in, in that case, raised a number of points in the hearing 
where she said you would file a motion to compel rather than this subpoena on the victim. Um, so they failed in, in, on that account. At one point, Lee Ashton was forced to acknowledge that the subpoena that she thought was the inappropriate remedy for the relief that she was seeking, or it was the inappropriate means for the remedy that she was seeking to get access to those records. So, you know, I posted a plain language review of that hearing on January 25th on my Substack, explaining what had happened. Um, it, because a lot of people can't follow the legal wrangling, and if you couldn't attend the hearing via WebEx and, like, watch the video of it, um, you know, you're kind of at a loss for what the developments in the case are. Um, so I watched it on WebEx with others and kind of decoded it in plain English so that regular people could follow along with what was happening. What was happening. So, uh, in general, what's happening is, you know, it's a lot of free trial wrangling. They haven't filed a motion to dismiss yet. I don't anticipate them filing that for a while. I think this is going to drag on. I'm, my speculation on this is that the Utah County Attorney's Office is looking to flip David Lee Hamlin on David Okerlund Levitt. I was wondering. I was wondering if that was going to happen too. Yeah, that's a. If I had to guess, uh, I would guess that that is their goal. They think that they can flip. David Lee Hamlin to get to David Levitt. Um, my thought on that is that it's a tactical error. I think David Lee Hamlin is kind of pathologically convinced that he's following a higher law, that he's above and beyond the reach of culpability. Um, he's not going to waver unless something drastic occurs. And thus far, nothing drastic has occurred to shake his confidence. So my, my thing with the Utah County Attorney's Office or the UF County Attorney's Office and the Utah County Sheriff's Office is that they probably should have just gone after David Okerlund Levitt directly as opposed to doing it through David Lee Hamlet. Um, Levitt, according to Adam Herbitz, was under investigation by the Department of Homeland Security for uh, human trafficking and possibly sex trafficking. We know that he has, you know, prior adoptions that were highly irregular, including one that involved an Indian tribe out of Montana, where he, in violation of federal law, convinced the tribe to turn over a young Indian girl to them and his wife for adoption. Federal law weighs you're, against... You're breaking up a little bit. I'm going to say that again. So David Levitt adopted a little girl from a Montana Indian. Yeah, he adopted a, a girl from an Indian tribe in Montana. Initially, the tribe social services was resistant to the idea because there's a federal law that's on point, which says that non-Native Americans can't adopt Indian children. You have to understand the history of Native American adoptions back in the 70s, you had children being adopted left and right out of, off of Indian reservations by non-Indian parents and non-Indian families. The federal government recognized that this was a problem 
and they passed federal legislation that strongly discouraged and even prohibited it in most cases. And so David Lee Hamlin was running up against that federal statute when he went to Montana to try to adopt this little girl. When he went to Montana, he still ran into the same roadblocks. Social services was not going to turn it over or was not going to turn the girl over to him for an adoption. So he went directly to the chief of the tribe. He proposed a barter arrangement whereby the tribe's buffalo herds could be exchanged to Levitt's contacts in Ukraine, where he works for the Levitt Institute, training Ukrainian lawyers and, and jurists um, in the American legal system and what he claims to be an effort to model American democracy and American democratic institutions. Um, the chief apparently interceded um, in such a way that he was able, that Levitt was able to walk away that day with the child and the adoption went forward. I, uh, I watched a video of him describing that day and how nervous he felt placing the child in his own car and how the, the Native Americans were watching him. And it wouldn't have been something if one of them just walked over and grabbed the baby back. Said, We're not going to let you have her, you know? I mean, it would have been something, but it, it wouldn't have. I don't think it would have worked. I think at that point he had made a deal with the chief of the tribe, and that was that. Whether it violated federal law or not, um, one of the things that I personally have been focused on the past two weeks are the corporate entities associated with David Levitt and his family, um, as well as other alleged Church of State members, and because I believe that they use their LLCs and their partnerships, any sort of business entity that they have to move people and to accomplish the goals of the LDS Church of State. So understanding those corporate organizations, those corporate fronts, is going to be critical to understanding how they do what they do. Now, from what we know about the Department of Homeland Security's investigation, apparently it's stalled out, and the agent who was running point on that investigation has apparently filed a whistleblower complaint alleging that the closure of the investigation was improper. Do you know the name of that? person i don't i have as yet been unable to find the name of the person who was investigating david lee Hamlin, or david okerlund levitt for the department of homeland security um that's some tough information to come by i would imagine that adam herbert has it um and he's a reporter out of salt lake but i personally have not been able to access that information uh, thus far, it's something that I'm working towards, but it, it takes time to get accurate information and then to verify it. Well, it, once you find that person, let them know that I would love to interview them if they felt comfortable coming forward. So, absolutely. Um, I don't know how comfortable they would feel going on the record. My understanding of it is they're still employed by DHS, so I don't know if they would feel been strained by that employment uh, as to whether or not they do an interview. 
I do intend to locate them and solicit them to talk to me, but we'll see if they do or they don't. Um, in the interim time, what I'm focusing on are the corporate entities and organizations associated with the five pages of people in the Hamlin victim statements right. who are named members um, because I think that understanding their business structures and their business entities is one to be key to understanding how they pulled off their crimes over the past 40 years. Well, the, po- so, the post you wrote about David Levitt working at the airport in baggage handling was just so noxious to me because you could see how they would want to have someone on the ground in their circle actually handling certain luggage. And it, it just, ugh. But I, I thought, yeah, I can connect those dots. I don't know if other people can, but I can. Yeah, a little background for listeners who may not be familiar with that story. I posted a story examining uh, David Okerlund Levitt's admission that he had, he had quit the Mormon Tabernacle Choir to go work in a baggage handler position for Delta Airlines at an airport for $8.50 an hour. Now, he told that story of an anecdote during his campaign for state attorney general. Um, and his reasoning, the justification that he offered for taking that $8.50 an hour position was that he could get free flights. Now, in the same story where he's saying that he quit his position with the Mormon Tabernacle Choir to go be a baggage handler for $8.50 an hour, he says that he loaned his campaign $300,000 out of his own pocket. So this is not a guy who needs to have an $8.50 an hour baggage handling position for free flights. He's got $300,000 to self-finance his own campaign for political office. So none of it made any sense. Now, what does make sense is if he does want to be on the ground when they're bringing people in, that's the perfect position for him to be in. He would have access to an airport. He would have access to Delta's terminals, to anything to do with Delta's facilities to conduct his activities on behalf of the LDS Church of Satan if he is, in fact, a part of that organization. Right now, it's an allegation. Nothing has been proven but he would be putting himself in that position. It's important to note that while he was working as a baggage handler, he was also the county attorney. So he's the chief prosecutor, which means that other rank-and-file employees at that airport are probably not going to question him or oppose him too much if they find him doing something around the airport that looks suspicious um, because he's the chief prosecutor of the county in which they reside. I don't know if you, if you know this, but we lived in Cedar City, Utah for three and a half years, and it is my husband's hometown. I did not know that about you. Yeah. Um, I worked, yep. I, just an anecdote, I worked for a theater company in town, and we were hired to provide entertainment for an honor flight. And one of these flights is veterans will go in one day, fly to Washington, D.C., go see their war memorials, and then they fly them home the same day so that if they're disabled or elderly, they're only gone for one day, and then they're back home. So my little group provided entertainment for those waiting inside the Levitt hangar. They own a hangar there in Cedar City where these these gentlemen were brought back 
you know, and we provided the music there. So I've been in that Levitt hangar in Cedar. Yeah, they have their own hangar. They, you have to, like, uh, for listeners, David Levitt is the son of Dixie Levitt, who owns one of the largest insurance brokerage firms in the country. Um, Dixie Levitt is a multimillionaire. Dixie Levitt's other son, David, Han- or David Levitt's brother, Mike Levitt, is a former two-term governor of the state of Utah, and he was a member of the Bush administration in two separate com- two separate offices. Yeah, wasn't so, he the head of the EPA and also was, Health and Human yeah. Services? Yeah. Yeah, he was the head of the EPA. Um, so these are this is a family that is plugged in to the Republican power structure and to the Utah political and business structure in such a way as to make it very difficult to come against them. Well, and F- uh, FYI, I grew up in the same Mormon congregation as Mitt Romney. His parents were in the same stake that I lived in. He left on his Mormon mission in 1968, which is the year I was born. So I didn't cross paths with him too much, but many of his family members live in that stake. So also very connected political family. Yeah, very connected politically. Um, Gordon Bowen, the purported uh, LDS Church of Satan Punisher for the High Council is a fundraiser for Mitt Romney and a longtime friend. Uh, Mitt Romney's sons stayed in his New York apartment when they were in New York. One of the sons worked as an intern at McGarry Bowen, uh, which is Gordon Bowen's advertising agency. So the connections run really deep um, between these political families and these alleged members of the LDS Church of Satan, uh, be it the Levitts or the Romneys or the Udalls or even the Crapos who, you know, are mentioned once in, uh, in the Hamlin victim statements. Um, so with the Udalls and the Lees, they are related by blood and marriage to the Hamlin family. So that would give you connections to uh, Senator Mike Lee, um, Mo Udall, uh, and his brother were, were also connected family. They were family relations to the Hamlin family. So, and by talking I, about these relations, we're not necessarily saying that everybody's all in with the goals of the Satanic Church of Satan who use the Mormon faith as their cover. We're just saying it's interesting how interconnected it all is through marriage, through business contacts, political contacts, and we're just observing all of it and saying who did what. And can we be helpful as journalists? to bring the story to the public. Yeah, and with with these relationships, one of the things that you have to understand are roles. Um, so the roles within the Church of Satan, things like the Punisher, uh, the Conspirator, um, the Pater Familius, so on and so forth, the Peacemaker. The Breeder. <laughs> the Breeder. <laughs> yeah. My, my mother was a Breeder. And, you know, my parents were um, seduced to join this group. I don't think they willingly said, hey, let's go join the Church of Satan. They were very happy members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. 
My dad was a full-time seminary teacher in Star Valley, Wyoming, Richard Tripp. He worked there for three and a half years. My mom was a homemaker, three little boys. And then they decided to move back home to Detroit, where both of the parents, grandparents of my, my grandparents lived. And they did that just before I was born. And while they were there, I believe somebody invited them to a party. And they were um, just amazed that sophisticated, politically connected, wealthy people wanted to have them join them at a social gathering. They were flattered. Wow, I guess we've arrived. And so this young, innocent couple shows up at this party. And I believe at that party, something happened to compromise my parents. I don't know what it was, but they were sucked into this cult. And I believe they were unwilling members right up until the day my dad died. I don't think they wanted to be participants in this thing. Yet they were terrorized by the many murders that happened to their fellow travelers. And they sought to be obedient and, you know, do whatever these people wanted to protect their own lives and the lives of their kids. And I believe one of my older siblings was sacrificed. Uh, my mother was forced to abort that baby. That's my own belief. And this was the baby she had just before mine. I was born and um, my mother is a tortured soul. And when I started to remember and openly talk about what had happened to me, the sexual abuse in the family and the ritual abuse, my own mother claimed that I was suffering for what is termed false memory syndrome. She encouraged everyone in my family to read the book, False Memory Syndrome by Elizabeth Loftus, who had been hired by the False Memory Syndrome group to write the book. And this own group was outed by their own children and grandchildren as being a bunch of pedophiles. And so when Mike Smith gave his press conference and talked about how David Levitt calling the victims in this situation tragically mentally ill, he said the words, how dare you? He said it twice. How dare you say that this is just mental illness? And that's where the, the story really started to resonate in my heart because of my own experience of being called mentally ill when I was telling the truth about what happened to me during my childhood. And it stuck with me ever since. And I have determined that I will stand comfortably, publicly with the victims, come what may, and support them and help them. And any others, I believe there's probably thousands and tens of thousands of other victims out there. And my message to the victims is, you will start to heal when you openly tell what happened to you. That was the catalyst for me healing. I had to be open about it. And then I was able to reconcile. And, you know, I go forward. I, I'm living a happy life. I, and, and that is my message to everyone, is you can heal from this. And I've used the atonement of Jesus Christ to help cover all of it and help me. He's led me by the hand to know how to help myself. And part of helping is by reaching out to other victims. Um, that has been incredibly satisfying to me because my perpetrators are mostly dead. I don't think I'll get justice in this life for what they did to me as a child. 
But if I can help others stand up to their perpetrators and find some courage, that's that's who my work on Substack is dedicated to, is these other victims. Yeah, I mean, the victims are central to everything in this case, and they're the ones that you want to champion if you do this kind of work and if you're covering this kind of abuse. And so my focus on the Hamlin case is pretty it's pretty much been laser focused on the people in the 2012 to 2014 case because I believe that that's central to unraveling everything to do with David Lee Hamlin. Um, well, and like I said, because I investigated the Pizzagate stuff so thoroughly back in the day, once I read the victim statements, it really fleshed out why they do certain things that they do. Like what's up with all the face carvings and the, you know, face mask and, and getting people's skin. You know, what, what was that all about? You read about that in what's termed the frazzle drip materials around Hillary Clinton and Huma Abedin. Why would they cut a child's face off? What's that about? You kind of get a sense of, of what it's about when you read about what's going on at Gordon Bowen's home. Yeah, I don't know if I would analogize the Hamlin allegation to Pizzagate. Um, my focus is strictly the Hamlin case itself. I don't put it in a larger context um, such as that. Uh, and in my opinion, Pizzagate, there's some validity to it. I mean, if you look at the social media accounts of, of the principal actors involved, such as the owner of Common Pizzagate, these are not normal people. All you um, have to do is look at their artwork. Look at the artwork. You look at what they're putting out there on social media. And it is absolutely reprehensible. It, you know, a normal person doesn't put that out there. A normal person doesn't joke about pedophilia or child rape or torture or mutilation or murder. And these people were riddled with that. In Pizzagate. Now, in terms of the specific allegations that there is an underground chamber at Comet Pizza, I don't believe that for a second. The the neighboring pizza parlor, Mesta Pizza, was the one that I zeroed in on um, because they had a spy wrangle in their logo, and the spy wrangle is a pedophile symbol. I felt, based on how much the media obfuscated it, changed it from Mesta Pizza to Comet Pizza emphasize things that were clearly just rabbit trails as opposed to focusing on the core allegations. Um, it was kind of hard. It was just Pizzagate was a rabbit hole to go down. It didn't lead anywhere and wasn't going to do anything. The Hamlet case file is that we have a central set of documents that are core police and law enforcement documents. They haven't been filtered through the media. They haven't been distorted. They are what they are. What did, you, are, what did you think of Brandy Zadrozny's take on it, the NBC journalist who wrote her satanic panic article? You know, I think that Brandy Zadrozny, like many mainstream journalists, is, you know, they're, they're a mercenary. They're a hired gun to run interference for corporate America. And corporate America is a front for the shareholder class in this country. 
And when you're looking into people who are in these allegations, these are business owners. These are prominent members within the Latter-day Saint communities in Provo, Spring City, Salt Lake, Aspen, New York. These are heavy hitters. They are the shareholder class. These are the people that own things in this country. These are people who have equity. And they're the ones who are engaged in this behavior. So for somebody like Brandy Zadrosny, who works for a corporate media outlet, um, she's going to do her job and she's going to dutifully um, try to discredit and dispel any story that would implicate the people who own the corporate entities that she works for in corporate media. Um, it's As George Carlin put it, it's, it's one big club and you're not in it. That's right. Um, and, and that's the thing. I've never been in the club. I don't have any aspirations of joining the club. Um, so therefore, I am not encumbered by any obligation to the club to sugarcoat anything. Well, um, your reports, I think, have been some of the best. And your willingness to go to original source and call people like Roselle on the phone indicate your willingness to just do the work that needs to be done. Yeah, and there's a big myth about this type of journalism that it costs a lot of money. I mean, I have spent a good bit of money in terms of, you know, the investigative tools that I use on this. Thankfully, Substack has a subscription feature that has enabled me to offset some of those costs. I am by no means revenue neutral. But it, it does not cost a lot of money to do investigative journalism. It, it does not take a lot of resources to do investigative journalism and to break stories. It simply takes tenacity and time and the willingness to follow the facts. And in this case, it's going to be dogged groundwork that's going to break this case open. Well, when the when the files first came out, I encouraged all indie journalists and really anyone, bloggers, anyone interested in the story to grab the files, download everything, the video, audio and the victim statements and put them off in a safe place. So that if they were able to pull down my blog or any other place where the, the victim statements are hosted, that they could be encrypted and, and kept safe on thumb drives and uh, various places around the Internet so that we always had a backup copy. And I had so many people contact me, say, yep, I've got them. They're safe. And that just made me feel like, OK, we're a team. Most of these people are anonymous. I encourage people to send the victim statements out through email. You know, don't even send the link, just email them all out. And because of that, they're not going to be able to cover this up. They're not going to be able to cover up the victim statements. They are now in the public domain. And somebody asked Sheriff Mike Smith one time about the Internet and what's happening on the Internet. And he said, I don't have jurisdiction over the Internet. I have no control. And so I think we're going to be able to use these modern tools to out these Gadiant robbers, and that's a Mormon term of people who work in darkness and in secret, who have run roughshod over the people of the world since the beginning of time. And this time they're not going to get away with it because we have these tools. 
And like you said, my Substack's free. I have people donating to me all the time, trying to help me with my work, which is fabulous. I appreciate it so much. We're not wealthy, but I can, I'm determined to continue on doing this work. And I don't think they're going to be able to, to cover it up as much as they may try. And so I stand publicly with you and your work. I'm going to muster on. I believe other journalists, as time goes on, will step into the fray. And especially indie journalists, as they realize the size and scope of this case and what it means for all of the satanic networks around the world, and there are many, um, that if we can get some justice around this case, perhaps we can get some justice in those other locations as well. Yeah, we have the advantage in this case of the documentation. That is the original police reports, um, the victim statements, the videos. We just have a wealth of data to draw from, and it's a huge springboard to jump off into filling in the blanks that exist in the case with, as I said earlier, five pages worth of individuals who are named as perpetrators of this abuse in the Hamlin case. And so we know who the perpetrators allegedly are, according to the victim statements, because they're identified by name. Well, Um, and for the record, I have been contacted by several of these people, their children, um, encouraging me in my work. I've asked all of them if they were willing to go public as being interviewed. All of them said no. They're still too scared. But have, you know, said, you keep going, girl. And so that has meant a lot to me personally, to be contacted by victims, family members who are very closely watching what's going on. Yeah, I've had that experience as well. And then I've had people who aren't named uh, families within the Hamlin victim statements who are identifying young and David Oakland Levitt is their abusers outside of the abuse recounted in the Hamlin victim statements. Yeah. So with David Lee Hamlin, he stayed during the week in Provo where he would work in his therapy practice. And then on the weekends, he would come down to Spring City and be with his family. They had two homes. Um, so one in Spring City, one in Provo. Hamlin would work during the week in, in Provo and in Spring City. Roselle and the Hamlin daughters would stay during the week and then their father would come in on the weekends. So what you have is a situation where during the week, Joe Benny and his cohorts in Spring City would have been functioning independently of David Lee Hamlin and committing their own abuse apart from the abuse counted in the Hamlin victim statements. Well, and it wasn't just that these perpetrators were abusing the girls. Um, they were pimping them out. They would offer them up as prostitutes and were making lots and lots of money uh, selling their own children for sex. And that's something that I experienced as well, that I was sold here and there as a little, little girl. Yeah, there's the child prostitution and then there's also the child pornography that they allegedly produced with LDS filmmakers like Brian Kapiner. Um So they specifically allege that Brian Kapiner, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his last name correctly, it could be Kapiner, Kapiner. I'm, I'm not too familiar with the correct pronunciation of his last name. I apologize if I am mispronouncing it. 
but he was alleged to have come down and directed child pornography productions starring the Hamlin girls who were identified as the three graces. Um, that was their performance name. Uh, it was a name that they inherited from their grandmother, Karma Rose Anderson, who, who was who recently who, passed away. We passed away in her nineties. Uh, she was Karma Rose uh, De Young. She had her sisters Belle Felice and, and Nola De Young, who were the daughters of the first dean of the uh, BYU Fine Arts uh, College, Garrett De Young Jr. Um, so these are LDS. LDS royalty, especially in the visual arts, performing arts, um, and you know, I'm also an artist, so I understand how they went after those of us who were singers, who had musical abilities, artistic abilities. I honestly think that was one of the main reasons that they wanted my mother as part of their network, as she was beautiful and talented, and they looked on her as a breeder for as someone who would bring children into the church of Satan to do their bidding. Yeah. I mean, it does seem to be systematic where they were trying to have their children grow up to be the kind of adults who would perpetuate this abuse on their own children going forward. Um, in terms of the Hamlin daughters, um, they were, they were descended from Richard Lloyd Anderson's family. His mother was Agnes Ricks. Um, Agnes Ricks is connected to Ricks College in Idaho, which is now BYU-Idaho. Um, so the, every which of a way that you look in the Hamlin victim statements, you're talking about families that stretch back to the earliest days of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Many of them were around at the time of Oliver Cowdery. In fact, Richard Lloyd Anderson specifically cited Oliver Cowdery as one of the early members of the LDS Church of Satan. Um, that's in the Hamlin victim statements. In terms of the practical side of those victim statements, going back to the Levitts, um, actually prosecuted a man named Tom Green during the Salt Lake City Olympics. Tom Green was a polygamist um, who openly advertised his, his polygamous lifestyle in various television appearances, I mean, would go on national shows, um, like Geraldo, so on and so forth, and he would advertise the fact that he was openly living in polygamy. This was a public relations nightmare for Utah in the run-up to the Salt Lake City Olympics because they were trying to represent themselves as a progressive and modern state. And so David Oakland Levitt, in his capacity as the then Juab County prosecutor, brought charges against Tom Green for his polygamous activity. Um, specifically, Tom Green had transported a 13-year-old girl to Mexico to marry her and to engage in, in sexual activity with her. He impregnated her, and he brought her back to Utah as, his, as one of his wives. That is child rape. What was extraordinary about the Green prosecution was that when then-Governor Mike Levitt, who was David Oakland Levitt's brother, was asked about the Green case, he openly speculated that Green's activities might be covered by religious liberty. There is no 
interpretation of religious liberty in American jurisprudence that would extend to allowing a grown man in his 30s to transport a 13-year-old girl to Mexico in order to marry her and have sex with her and impregnate her. The First Amendment does not go that far. Um, religious liberty does not go that far. There is no version of religious liberty that, that extreme. Um, Mike was later forced to walk back his comments after, you know, an uproar resulted. Um, so you have that, and then you also have what Tom Green's, one of Tom Green's wives said. She claimed that David Okerlund Levitt visited the Green household before Tom Green was prosecuted. And he represented, he represented to Tom Green and his wife that the prosecution was nothing to worry about. It was going to be a test case to see polygamy legalized in Utah. That was how Tom Green's wife said the prosecution was represented to them. So by David Okerlund Levitt. Well, what actually happened was Tom Green was convicted. He was sentenced. I believe, to five years to life. He served six years for raping a 13-year-old and getting her pregnant. He had married another one of his wives when she was 16. Um, that's also statutory rape. Um, it's also child marriage in the state of Utah. And Tom Green was not prosecuted for that by David Oakland Levitt. All accounts, Tom Green got a slap on the wrist for what he did. He served six years for raping a 13-year-old girl, who, by the way, was his stepdaughter by another one of his wives. Now, the story gets even stranger because you fast forward into the future, and Tom Green's son, William, gets busted for going on MySpace and making the acquaintance of another 13-year-old girl and engaging in sexual acts with her. Again, child rape. David Okerlund Levitt then takes on the case as William Green's defense attorney. Represents him against it, pleaded down to a lesser charge, and I don't believe that William Green did 180 days in prison. I'm sorry, you're, you're breaking up again. So he defended Tom Green's son against Tom Green, when Tom Green's son was busted for having sex with a 13 year old girl he met on MySpace. And so the ties run deep between David Oakland Levitt and the Green family. In the Hamlin case, um, in one of the victim statements, it specifically say, states that a polygamous boy was bought from the Greens to an LDS Church of Satan ceremony, and that boy wait, was later sacrificed. Did you say the word bought or did you say the word brought? He was brought from the Greens by David Oakland Levitt and his wife Shalom to an LDS Church of Satan ceremony in Spring City. The boy was then uh, sacrificed by the LDS Church of Satan members who had gathered for that ceremony. And how do you think they? How do you think they obtained the child? Was it through CPS? Well, it says that they bought they brought the child from the Greens. Now, the only Greens who are related to Hamlin's or the Levitt's that I've uncovered in my research 
It's the family of Tom Green, his polygamous family. But how do you what, how do you think they obtain the child? Well, it's a male child, and in polygamous groups, male child male children are not that valuable. They're a liability because they compete with older men for brides. And so you have this phenomenon in Utah where they call them the lost lost boys. It is the male children of these polygamous groups like the Kingston group, um, the FLDS, and Tom Green's group who are kicked out of the group as teenagers, and many of them don't have birth certificates or Social Security numbers, so they don't officially exist. And so it's very easy for these types of children to be procured by groups like the Church of Satan in order for ritual abuse and for ritual sacrifice. And so how they procured him, if he was a male child in a polygamous group, there's an excellent chance that there was no official record of his existence. And he was chattel. It would have been a barter or an exchange of sorts. He's not worth much to the polygamous group because he's competing with older men for, for child brides. So he's a liability. He can't be married off like a daughter because no one's in competition for a male child in one of these polygamous groups. Do you think, so, do you think his, his mothers willingly gave him up? Well, I think that the mothers of the LDS Church of Satan children were willingly putting their children for to be raped and tortured. So within these groups, it's a different world. And what you have to understand in polygamous groups, what the mother wants doesn't really matter. It's an extremely patriarchal system. And what the men say is what, you know, even within the LDS Church of Satan, the role of a father was to serve as paterfamilias over his family. He had absolute dominion over his wife and over his children. No one was to question it. In fact, David Lee Hammond invokes something called the wisdom of parents to rationalize and justify what he's doing to his children. And he's raping his own daughters. He's prostituting them out to therapy patients in his therapy practice and to people within the wider community as well as people within the LDS Church of Satan. He's, he's forcing them to, to participate in the production of child pornography. So, you know, when you ask if the mother would go along with it, of course she would. If she grew up in this kind of environment, she would have been conditioned from early childhood to accept what men said as the law. Did they, did uh, the Church of Satan get the green child before or after Tom died? It would have been before, based on the timeline and the uh, victim statements. And was he still in prison when that happened, or do you think he was out? Or if he was still in prison. Um, what I know is we have a prepositional phrase from the Greens. And the only Greens that I have been able to establish as being more polygamous and connected to David Okerlund Levitt and by David Okerlund Levitt to the Church of Satan, it, that's the family of Tom Green.
Yeah, I agree. That is one of the most horrifying stories in the victim statement, what they did to that little boy. And then eventually they killed him. And um, you read these stories of the ritual abuse and it, it brings to mind the old torture practices of Native American tribes where they would do it to each other to, to prove that they were brave. You know, this is how we prove that we are, we are mighty warriors as we will withstand this torture or we'll inflict it and then we'll cannibalize and, and murder. And um, these patterns are there. They're there in the scriptures. There's stories about this type of stuff in the Book of Mormon. There's definitely stories of this stuff in the Bible. And here we have these same practices playing out in Utah amidst these Church of Satan people. And I, I'm just ready for it all to be exposed. Go, Al. I think I'm going to wind down the show. Do you have any final things you'd like to share? Uh, yeah. Um, obviously, for any listeners out there, you can follow my Substack at 1830goel.substack.com. Obviously, follow uh, Jenny's work as well on her various blogs. I intend to continue following this, you know, wherever it goes. I believe that in 12 to 18 months, we'll start seeing fruit in the form of civil suits and criminal cases. That is my ultimate goal in this, is to build enough information uh, to start building criminal and civil cases against the perpetrators of this abuse. And you, you put out... You put out your first podcast yesterday, it looked like. Yeah, just a little 10-minute podcast. I try to make it as simple and digestible as possible. It is uh, concerned with Gordon Bowen and his residences in Salt Lake, which are the sites where some of the ritual abuse in the Hamlin cases uh, occurred. So I put that out there. There is an audio video, an audio version of it up on my Substack. I also have an article that I posted today, the video version on Rumble and on TikTok. So you have any number of platforms that you can go to to access it and to see either the video version or if you just want to listen to it, the audio version is directly on 1830goel.substack.com. Thank you so much for your time. I look forward to creating more of these types of shows as things develop. Um, I am an independent journalist who likes to work alone. I don't collaborate very often with anyone. But for someone who is a fellow traveler, who is engaged in similar types of journalism, I have no problem talking to them about their independent work and what's happening on their end of the spectrum. And I believe this journalist, I don't know his name, but he is doing the lion's share of the work right now on this case. As far as I can see, nobody else is doing it because they've all been threatened with lawsuits unless if they cease and desist. Uh, we both have chosen not to do so. We both plan to continue on. And we would invite any other indie journalist or mainstream journalist who wants to learn more about this case to go to our various sites and get the facts. My website, healthyfamilies.life, and a post right at the top of the homepage titled No More Secrets contains all of the victim statements and links to my Dropbox where you can download the video and audio files. I also have some of my content behind a paywall at Substack. 
so that those who would like to support me financially can make a donation or sign up as a monthly subscriber. I've been so grateful for those few who have signed up thus far because it does help to offset my own costs. And I would encourage you to do the same at Investigations in Ritual Abuse for Goel. Is that how you say it? Goel? Goel, yes. Goel, uh, who's, again, doing the most important uh, deep dives, in my opinion. So thank you again for your time. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you so much for having me, Jenny. Goodbye.